Okay, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Now, again, to set the stage of where we're at, um, we're still in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Mount of Olives. Um, if you look in chapter uh, 18, when it says, after he, after he does this chapter 17 prayer, it says in verse 1 of 18, Jesus spoke these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. So after he finishes this session with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he goes across the, the valley into the vicinity of Jerusalem, and that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Is that right, Dick? You cross back from Mount of Olives into the Jerusalem, greater... So if you just you think of a valley, yes. okay, and like a letter V, so on the west side of the valley is Jerusalem, on the east side of the valley is the Mount of Olives. So the Garden of Gethsemane is on the east side, but we're talking about a very short distance from the top of Mount of Olives to the top of the Temple Mount is a half mile. So it's a very close proximity. Okay, well he's saying that they're gonna he's departing from the where they're at and they're going to the garden, which I'm assuming is the Garden of Gethsemane, is where he is going to be. This prayer is with his disciples projecting his intercessory uh, role as priest. The prayer that you have recorded in Matthew and Luke about him asking his disciples to stay with him, and he goes with the three apart from the others, and he, pr- and he prays concerning his upcoming crucifixion and separation from the Father, and it's this deep, intense prayer about his going to the cross. That's not the same location, not the same time frame as this prayer. This prayer, I think, is, in the, is with his disciples. I think he's praying in front of his disciples when we talk about the prayer of chapter 17. I think his disciples hear this prayer Whereas the other prayer is intense and personal with uh, him and the Father about the, the cross. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, we're still in this, this final teaching uh, sermon to his apostles or his disciples that are going to become his apostles. And then he gets to the end of chapter 16. And we'll go back and just set, set the stage there. Because remember last week when we talked about his final words to his, his disciples... He has already promised them the coming and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the coming and dwelling of the Holy Spirit will happen at Pentecost. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is when the disciples and then everyone that becomes a believer after Pentecost is permanently indwelled with the Spirit of God, which is what is called the baptism of the Spirit. So when people talk about the baptism of the Spirit, a lot of times they get confused. and They talk about all different aspects of what the baptism is. The actual baptism of the Holy Spirit is when you are in, immersed with the Spirit of God permanently, and that happened at Pentecost. It's what Jesus talked about in Acts chapter 1 when he said what John the Baptist talked about with Jesus coming as the one who would baptize with the Spirit is going to happen so many days from now, and when, when that happens, you will have receive power to become my witnesses. So what happened at Pentecost was this permanent indwelling of the Spirit. So Jesus has already told them that when he's going away, but he's going to send this indwelling person of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, to indwell them and to empower them to live out what they're going to be asked to do. And what they're asked to do is to be the body of Christ. And with all the giftedness of the Spirit of God to pour out the ministry of Christ in starting the church and then in growing the church and being a part of the church. Now he talks about 
the relationship that we have now with the Father because of the relationship with the Son. And so that's what he says there in chapter 16, verse 23. And in that day you will ask me no question truly. I will say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world and am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Okay, so he's saying, again, just like he said when he told them the Spirit was coming to indwell them, that he was going back to heaven. Now he's saying again, I'm going back to heaven. And at this, I'm going to give you another promise that just as the Holy Spirit is going to come to indwell you, now you have the, the, the availability or the right to call upon the Father in my name. So when we pray and we ask things in Jesus' name, it's not just tacking something on the end of our prayer to, get, to, to make it meaningful. It is that when you go to the Father, the only way you can come to the Father is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're not born again and you're not a part of Jesus Christ's life, and Jesus Christ's eternal life, and you're not related to Jesus Christ, you have no access to the Father. You can't ask the Father for anything apart from being in Christ. So if you're not born again and, 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 and dwell with the Spirit of God, you have no access to the Father. So you have to have... The, when, you, when you pray in Jesus' name, that means you're praying because you have a relationship with his son. And that relationship with, you, with, his, with his son gives you access to the Father. Does that make sense? So, so you're going because you have a relationship with the son. It's like if you were going to anybody of any significance and their son told you, you go to, go to my father and you just tell him what you want because I told you so. That's, that's what he's saying, because you, you, you belong to me, and therefore the Father loves you because you love me, and therefore you can ask. Again, this asking what you will is in relationship to the, the responsibility of apostleship, the responsibility of being in the body of Christ, the responsibility of being a vessel to be used of God. So when you're asking anything in the will of God, he's talking about anything that will be of the Spirit's making in you to give you giftedness to do the work of God. It's not asking for things. It's asking for you to have empowerment by the Spirit of God to do the work that you've been called to do. So that's what he's talking about in that relationship. Because where the disciples have always had Jesus with them since he called them to be his disciples, and he's been there for them, now they have the Spirit of God in them, and they have the Father that they can call upon and pray for. Okay? So his disciples are still confused. They don't know a lot about what's happening here. It's all just a mad rush of, at the end here is going, what's fixing to happen. And so his disciples in verse 29 say, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Which they do. They believe that he came from God. But that's more of a mental belief than it is a real belief. Because Jesus says in the next verse, do you now believe? Do you now believe? He says it in that way. Do you now really believe? Do you really believe? Because an hour is coming and how has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because of the fatherhood. So what he's saying is they're coming to get me. They're coming to arrest me. And you believe that I come from the Father. Therefore, you believe that I am the Son of God. You believe that I have the power 
of God, and yet when this happens, you're going to flee. So it's not genuine faith from the heart. It's you're, you're understanding what I'm saying and you're agreeing with me, but it's not like it's going to manifest itself in the real time. But then he says, after that, you will believe. Because he says in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in, in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So what he's saying is, you're going to face persecution, you're going to face martyrdom, you're going to face all kinds of trials and tribulations as my followers, but you're going to do it with the peace of understanding and knowing that you're in God and God has you, and therefore you don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you. And so you will have peace, but you will have tribulation. Now this is not talking about the tribulation. People get all confused about Oh, the Christians aren't, the Christians aren't going, are, are going to be here during the tribulation because Jesus said we're going to have tribulation. Tribulation just means you're going to be persecuted. It means you're going to have trouble in this life because you're a believer in Christ. It doesn't mean you're going through the time of judgment that's to come that's called also the tribulation. Any questions about that? Okay, so now we're fixing to get into this, this prayer. This is uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, basically. The Lord's Prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 was just Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. This is really the Lord's Prayer. It is the transition from his ministry on earth, teaching his disciples, to his ministry in heaven as the high priest of the church. Okay? Now, when Jesus came to earth, he came first as a prophet, which means he came to reveal the Father, and he spoke words of truth. He, he, he spoke as the prophet from God that came directly from God, not just prophets on earth that had the spirit of God giving them the words. This is the prophet that came down from God. And he, his first role as a man, as the God man, as the son of, <clears throat> son of God on earth, as the role of the prophet to explain, to, to prophesy, to give truth, to give revelation of the true nature of God and the true things of God. The second role is now he's going to die. He's going to shed his blood and so he has the priesthood road of offering a sacrifice. It is a once-for-all sacrifice. And then he's going to heaven, and he's going to be our high priest interceding for us in heaven. And so he will do this until all of the time frame of God's judging on earth is, is done. And then he comes back to be the king. Now, when we talk about the king, we're talking about God is king over all things. But specifically, the angel told Mary that your son is going to sit on David's throne and rule on earth and on David's throne. David's throne is an earthly throne in Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to be king on David's throne. So he is king of the universe. We know that. But specifically, he's going to be the king over Israel, and the Israeli king at that time will be king over the whole earth. Okay, so that's what... That's what um, Peter is saying in Acts when he's preaching that the Pentecostal the sermon at Pentecost, and he's preaching that in Acts chapter two, and he goes on to explain about this person Jesus Christ, and he says in um, verse thirty two or verse thirty three, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. 
So he's talking about a time when he's coming back to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords on David's throne. So the promise was made to David in Samuel that your descendant would be the king over Israel. And your descendant would be the eternal king over Israel. And so this was fulfilled in the coming of the son of David, which is the seed of Abraham, which is the, the one that was the promised one to come. He will also not only be the savior of the world, but he will be the king of Israel. Same thing is repeated in Hebrews chapter 1, verse four, uh, 13, when it says, But to which of the angels he, has he ever said, Sit at my right, hand, my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So Jesus is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God as the high priest of the church, and until, until the time is right for him to come and judge the final Gentile ruler on this earth, which is the Antichrist, he's going to come down and destroy his armies, he's going to destroy the Antichrist, he's going to bind Satan, and he's going to begin the kingdom age, and he's going to sit on David's throne and rule the earth for a thousand years, just like Adam was supposed to have dominion and rule of the earth, now Jesus will have that dominion and rule the earth for a thousand years. So he is now, he was prophet, he came to reveal the Father, he is now priest in heaven at the right hand of the Father until he sits on David's throne as the king. So he, ha- he was prophet, he is now priest, and he's coming king. Understand? Everybody good? Okay, so let's look at this transition role now into his priestly role, which is going to start with his, sacrifice, his sac- sacrificing himself on the, on the altar and pouring out his blood. And then he's going to be ascending into heaven to become uh, sitting at the right hand of the Father. All right. So we get into this passage here. And we begin by saying in verse 1, These things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son and the son may glorify thee. Okay. The Trinity. Now this is a, this is a deep, deep subject. It's been debated immensely throughout church history. And we have to think clearly and understand that we're never going to understand totally God. God is beyond our comprehension. But we have some things that I think is important to know. Now, when he says Father, what does the term Father mean? The one that brought you to life. Okay. Father means something comes from that person. I'm a person. I'm a man. I became a father when something came forth from me. Okay, so if God is, now just listen carefully, I'm not. If God is, in essence, without need of anything, and there are three equally parts or equally persons of the Trinity. That means that if, if God had never purposed to create, what would you have? You would have the same God before there was anything. Because God didn't need anything. He didn't have to have anything. So without any creative work, you have God, self-existent, 
all God, all powerful, without any need of anything. So how would those three persons of the Trinity be explained or be known if God had never purposed to bring forth anything? Would there, there wouldn't be God the Father because nothing has come forth. You would have God, right? Three equally persons of deity. Now, there's been a lot of, of, of there's been a lot of talk and trying to discern and, and about this term, the eternal generation of the Son. What's that mean? What does the word generate mean or generation or come? If you generate something, you come forth. So to me, if God had never purpose, now we're just working through this, okay? I'm not laying it out. I'm just saying we're working through it. If God had never purpose to create anything, the three persons of the Trinity are all equally God. The definition of God is self-existent. So my understanding is that in eternity, and again, eternity is not a timeline. It's not you just keep going back forever. You keep going forward. Eternity is, is now. It's a sphere. It is God exists in the present all times. There's not a length of time because there's no time with God. He exists in a present sphere. So in eternity, you have God who existed all alone with no need of anything. But at some point in eternity, God purposed, right? God purposed to create. He purposed to bring into something into being. And when he purposed to bring in something into being, the concept of God bringing forth is there. So when you talk about the term father, that means it comes forth from the purpose of God to bring something into being. And so it's first used in, 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 in the Old Testament when Moses is talking about the people of Israel all came forth from the Father in heaven. So they came forth as humanity. as part of the creation. Okay? So the term God the Father, to me, is, the, is representative of the entire Trinity. So when you have the, the term Father, it means that God generated all things. And, and, and so basically when when uh, the passage was read this morning that it says uh, there's but one God. There's but one God. So we're not talking about just one person of the Trinity. We're talking about all of the Trinity, right? Because they're all equally God. There's one God, the Trinity, made up of three persons. And out of that Trinity came forth the purpose to create. And in the purpose to create, there was also the purpose to create humanity and the purpose to create humanity there was also the purpose to redeem a certain portion of humanity and through the the means of redeeming redeeming a certain portion of humanity there had to be 
a man that was of God that could redeem humanity. Therefore, there had to be a son. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you think about it, there's a couple of verses that, that are important to understand this concept of what I'm saying. Isaiah chapter 9. When he's talking about this child that's going to be born, that's going to come forth, and it's going to be the one that is going to reign on David's throne, the one that's going to be a savior. It says in verse 6 of chapter 9 of Isaiah, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. The son is going to be called the father. So again, it's a reference to the fact that this child that's going to be born is equally God, the equally part of God that brings forth all things. Right? And so you get to John 1.1, which we've already gone through in great detail. In John 1.1, when it talks about the Word, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay, so here he is saying that this second person of the Trinity is equally God, out of which all things exist and all things came forth. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the Word became flesh. So this second person of the Trinity became flesh, and in the incarnation, you have the generation from the Father, God, in the, the essence of God, the three persons of God, the Trinity of God, out of that, as God purposed to bring into humanity and purposed to redeem humanity, there had to be a role for the three persons of the Godhead. God the Father is going to have the role of representing eternal God, the three persons, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, is going to become flesh and represent the Son of God that's going to become a man to die for humanity, to bring into existence the, the, uh, the, the redemptive work of God. And you've got the Spirit of God that's going to be actively involved in carrying out all of the purposes, purposes and plans of God. So out of that purpose of God in, in eternity, so you could say from eternity He is the Son. But only in the sense from eternity as God purposed, not in the eternity if there was not a purpose. Does that make sense? If there was no purpose of God to create, there would be no need for the roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There would just be one God. Self-existent without any need of anything. And then once the purpose of God has been brought into existence, then the Godhead agreed for the roles to be manifest as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't understand how you can say that the Son is eternally generated from the Father and say that they're equally self-existent God. In the way we think. If so, in the way, in God's perspective, that could be possible. You could have from the very, from the exi always existing was eternally regenerate. But to me, eternally 
generate means you came forth from and you can't be equal to. And that's where I have the issue with the, the problem of the term eternally generate. Question. So how do you bring into that thought process the fact that the Bible says that in order to prove something is true, you've got to have at least two witnesses. So God has never left himself without any witnesses from the beginning, even before creation, because it was always a triune God in existence. To let us make man, or let us create, yes. So, how do you... Okay. <laughs> but what you're saying is, all three persons of the Trinity give witness to the reality of God and the truth of God. So God has two or more witnesses that bring bear witness to the reality of the Trinity of God. Even prior. Even prior, Yeah. I mean, God is, God is self-existent. So before there was even the purpose to create, God is God, one God, all equally the same. Not one coming from another, they're all equally the same. And then out of the purpose of God, you have the, the incarnation. All, to me, every aspect of the Son flows into the incarnation. He was the only begotten, which means he came forth from the Father as a, as a son, as a man. And he was begotten in the incarnation. Now, it was purposed from eternity. We understand that. So from all eternity, he is the son from that understanding, from that perspective. So from all eternity, he is the son that was purposed of God, and he became flesh. So he became the begotten son of God in time at a, at a, at a specific point in history. But from all eternity, he was purposed, and therefore he took the role on before there was ever any created work. That was my question. Who is the, this is not the right term to use, who's the spokesman? Let us make man in our own image. Who, who determines? Well, is Moses, is, Moses is quoting that, and it's coming from the Trinity, and the Trinity is saying, God is saying, let us, displaying that there's three of us, let us make man in his own image. So which one is the one that spoke that, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, you would think maybe it was the Word that spoke it, because the Word is the expression of God. The, the, that's what the Word means. It, it's logos. It means ex, God expressed. And so you would think that the Word spoke the world into being. And so God, three persons of God, created the world and purposed the world in creation. And the Word, the second person, spoke it into being. So... When you say that God purposed it, you're talking about the Trinity of God that purposed it, not just one aspect of the Trinity. So it didn't, it wasn't that, that God the Father purposed it and then God the Son carried it out. It was God purposed it and then it was expressed through the Word. The Word brought it, called it forth into being, and the Spirit of God was involved in the actual integration of that. I told you it's deep, and it's. <laughs> It's hard to grasp. It's hard to understand. But that's what the Trinity is. It's hard to understand. But there's been, there's been discussions throughout the church history and different, different versions or different slants on what does it mean when you say the eternal son? Well, he was purposed in eternity, so he is, from that perspective, he is eternal son. But what I'm saying is if God had never purposed to create anything and just remained as God alone self-existent without any need of anything, there would be no need to use the term Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because that has no meaning. If nothing comes forth from God, there's no meaning in Father because the word Father means to cause something to come into being. 
I don't know exactly where it came from because when, he's, when Jesus is talking that I came forth from the Father, that's, that, to me, that's him saying, as the incarnate word, I became flesh. As the Son of God, as the Son of Man, I came forth from the Father. And so when you use the term, he is the only begotten of the Father, in one way it means he is the only one like that. He's the only one that has ever come into being as a man that was, that was uniquely, supernaturally born. Now, Adam was brought forth from God in the flesh, and he became a living soul. But he was not born in the sense that he was born out of man. So Jesus is the only man that's ever been born, unlike every other man, through the, the progeny of Adam. He's the only one. So he's the only begotten son of God where he was actually conceived in the womb and brought forth as a living baby, as a human being. He's the only begotten of the Father. Now, he came forth from the Father. He didn't come forth from Adam. He didn't come forth from humanity. He came forth from God, but he is fully man. So it's not, I'm not, it's not a contradictory statement. It's just that we've had discussions throughout the church history on trying to understand and grasp these concepts of the Trinity and this aspect of when Jesus is speaking on earth as the Son of Man, as the Son of God in the flesh, he's speaking in terms of, I came forth from the Father, which is what John said, John 1.17, the Word became flesh, he came from the Father, he's going back to the Father. And so the roles of the deity changed with the purpose of God, and they will always be changed because of the fulfillment of the purpose of God in eternity. Jesus will always be identified as the Son of God, as a man, and have a glorified body. Prior to the purpose of God to create, Jesus was no different than the other two persons of the Trinity. They're all spirit God, the same essence, the same being. Okay? Um, uh, when it's referred to as Jesus in the order of Melchizedek, being king and priest, that's always been, I mean, kind of confusing to me. But it's going to be the same concept. God, God purposed one to uh, be in a position as Christ would be in a position to help us to understand. Uh, well, again, again, the the question about Melchizedek is the one that's asked, and what Melchizedek represented was. In the Jewish hierarchy, when God ordained the Mosaic Covenant and he ordained the tribe of Levi to be the priestly line that would be separate from the kingly line of David or whoever, so they, they were always separate. The, the king could not be a priest and the priest could not be a king. So Mel, Melchizedek was a figure in history where it wasn't recorded where he came from, where it wasn't recorded who his father and mother were. So in that way, he's like Jesus in the sense that he has no earthly progeny. He has no earthly uh, tr uh, transcendent. And therefore, he was king, and yet he was a priest of the Most High God. So he was, he was a, a, a picture or a forerunner of Jesus in that sense. To the Jews, it was... It was Important to see that because they believed that David's line and the Levitical priesthood line were completely separate, and they were. But Jesus was going to be uniquely because he had the role of priest and king. Okay. All right, let's go back to the text. I'll let you swallow on that a little bit. 
give you something to think about while you're sleeping at night and trying to think of what does that mean? Okay, so it says, Father, and this is Jesus, and I believe he is praying vocally. I believe he's praying in the presence of his disciples. I think he wanted them to hear this prayer so that they would have some concept of the communion between the Father and the Son. So he says, Father, the hour has come. Now, the hour has come is referring to what? Okay. In eternity, there was a covenant made between the three persons of the Trinity. Okay? In Hebrews chapter 13, 20, it says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So the eternal covenant is the covenant that was made before the foundation of the world. It is mentioned there in 1 Peter chapter 1 when it says, um, If you address this father in verse 17, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, as we go into a few verses here, try to understand that this is a covenant of the Trinity where the Trinity purpose for the second person of the Trinity to become a man and to be the lamb that would die for the sins of the world that would come forth and that the Father would raise him from the dead or that God, the Trinity, would raise him from the dead and he would be the righteous one. So this was done prior to the foundation of the world. So there was a covenant made in heaven before God ever created man. The covenant was that God was going to redeem man so that God in the last chapter of Revelation, the new heaven, new earth, you have God in eternity with redeemed humanity. So God purposed before there was everything created to get to this point where he has an earth and a new Jerusalem or God's throne on that earth and redeemed humanity that are glorified in the, in the likeness of the glorified son that became the son to die for them. And so that's what this was taking place was the eternal covenant. And so, so that's what he's talking about. The hour has come to execute this covenant. And that's what Hebrews is saying in chapter 12. When you look at chapter 12 of Hebrews, the writer is contrasting the Mosaic covenant with the eternal covenant. And he says in Hebrews chapter 12 that... You have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is verse 22 of Hebrews 12. And to myriads of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So when he's talking about the blood of Abel, what's he talking about? You go all the way back to the beginning. When Adam fell and Adam sinned and Eve sinned and Jesus is speaking to the serpent, he said there will be image between, between your seed and my seed. Talking the woman's seed versus the serpent's seed. And he, so he's talking about a righteous seed that was going to come to take 
care of the eternal covenant. And he thought that Abel was the, the righteous one. And he was righteous because it says in chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 4, it says, by, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So here he speaks about, in chapter 12, that the blood of Jesus in the eternal covenant is better than the blood of Abel. Abel was righteous. He believed God. But what was the problem? He was born in sin. His sacrifice, being killed by Cain, and the shedding of his blood, was not able to redeem anyone else, not even himself. It took the blood of righteous Jesus to make provision eternally for the sin of Adam and the human race. So the writer of Hebrews is going back to past the Mosaic Covenant, back past all the covenants that he made with Abraham, to the beginning, and he's talking about the blood that was shed of Abel was a picture of the blood that would come that would take away the sins of the world, but the blood of Abel was not sufficient. And neither was the blood of any other person. No man that was born in Adam could provide a sacrifice that was perfect and righteous and good enough for God to redeem humanity. So therefore, Jesus had to be shed on the blood, his blood on the cross, as the eternal covenant, as the righteous blood that would take away the sins of the world. Any question there? Okay? So, this, when he's saying this, the hour has come, it's the hour to enact what has been purposed before the foundation of the world. The reason that, that there are roles in, the, in the, the Trinity is because of this whole, whole purpose of God that is fulfilled at this one moment in time that's fixing to take place. And Jesus is talking to his disciples that it's, this is the greatest moment in all the history of the world that the Son of God is coming down here and he's going to die on the cross to make provision for the eternal covenant of God to bring men into an eternal relationship with God having their sins forgiven and they're being made righteous. The greatest moment in all of history is what's fixing to happen. The death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To satisfy what God purposed before the foundation of the world. So then he says, Glorify thy son, that the son may glorify thee. So here you have the resurrection Christ in his glorified state, giving glory to the Father, and then ascending to heaven, and, and the Father giving glory to the Son. And this glory will be manifest and revealed when Christ comes back as the King of kings, Lord of lords, and the whole world will see his revealed glory as the King of kings, as the Son of God in all of his glory. And so all that will give glory to the Father and the purpose of God that was established for, for the foundation of the world and God will be glorified in that he will bring to glory men through the work of his own son and the separation between the son and the father on the cross. That great tragedy that we can't even imagine to bring in the purpose of God eternally. So, the, God will be glorified in this transaction. And then it says in verse 2, Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind. Now God gave... And this includes the Trinity of God. God, in this establishment of this eternal covenant, gave the authority to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ has all authority as the Son of Man. 
So God has given it to the second person of the Trinity as a son of man to have all authority. So you go back to John chapter 3, and he says that. He says in verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So every time you, you talk about this coming person that is Jesus Christ, he talks about having that authority. In John chapter 5, when he's talking about him being equal with the Father, and he talks about... Uh, in verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him, believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of judgment, out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, he also, he, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, as God, he had authority. So as the second person of the Trinity, as the Word, as equally God, he had authority. He didn't have to be given authority. But as the incarnate Christ as the word that became flesh as the son of man God has God the trinity of God has given to the son all authority to execute all judgment so it will be God giving over the judgment to the son of God which is deity but he's operating as a man so he talks about that John 10 18 he goes on and he explains again He's talking about the great shepherd. He talks about, in verse 18, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down again. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Okay, he's saying, I have authority to lay down my life. I have authority to raise it up again. But in the eternal covenant, it said, The Father raises up the Son. So the Father is representing of the Trinity, and in fact, all the Trinity is involved in the actions of God. It's not just one person of the Trinity that is involved, it's the entirety. So when we're talking about God, the Father, He is representing the Trinity every time, and all the Trinity is involved in the actions of the Father. So Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead by the act of God, which includes Himself. He has authority to take up His own life. Because he's in, in, the, in, in his deity, he has the authority to raise himself up. So anytime you're talking about God the Father, God the Father term is representing the trinity of God, not just one person of, of the trinity. Okay. In Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, verse 8. It says, see to it that no, one, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. So he has been given all of the rule and authority of the Trinity and the in the carrying forth all the actions toward the creation. So it is, is, is he has the authority. 
he has um, this authority over him. Now, the next, pa- the next verse, and we'll close with this passage and this understanding here. The next thing he says in this intercessory prayer is that all he has been given authority over all mankind that to all whom, he, whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. This concept that in the beginning, I mean before the beginning, before creation, there was the election of God. And in the election of God, God chose to put his affection on individuals that he has chosen. And in this eternal covenant, God gave to the Son those whom he chose as a love gift. Okay? These are written, according to Hebrews, according to Revelation 17, talking about those that those that are not taking the mark of the beast. In verse 8, of Hebrews, of Revelation 17, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose names has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was, was and is not, it will come. So before the foundation of the world, their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. It says that again in Revelation 13. In verse 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So before the foundation of the world, the book of life has the recording of all those whom God has chosen to be saved. And then in John chapter 6, when Jesus is speaking about him being coming down as the bread of life, and he makes it clear that in verse 35, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So before the foundation of the world, Romans 8 says, all those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and all those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he called into a relationship or he called into life and all those whom he birthed or gave life to, he justified and all those he justified, he glorified. So the conformity to the image of his son is a a glorified state in which the son of man has been glorified in his resurrected body. And so all those who have been given to the son will also be resurrected into a glorified state. And so all that has been given to me will come to me, and it says, and all the Father gives me, in verse 37, shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. How can anyone who has been given of the Father before the foundation of the world not be brought to glory? Because every purpose of God will be fulfilled exactly like God purposed it. And if God has purposed from all eternity to bring those into glory whom he has purposed to save, they will be brought to glory. And it's through the work of the Holy Spirit who brings life. And once he births you and gives you regenerated life, then you are to have the nature of God within you. And out of that nature exudes faith and desire to follow God and desire to follow him. And because of that faith has been granted you by the indwelling of the, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, you believe in God and that faith is counted as righteousness and you are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And so it cannot help but happen exactly as it is intended. But this was been granted from the beginning of creation. It's kind of a, an interesting thought there in Acts chapter 10, if I can find it. It may not be Acts chapter 10. It may be... Yes, I think it's Acts 10. Nope, that's not yet. Anyway, it's, 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 uh, it's when Jesus is uh, telling Paul in the Corinthian church that he's not going to be hindered from preaching because God has still those who have not come to know him that he has already given to the Son. Those that God has given to you have not come to me yet. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what passage that was. I didn't write it down, but it's somewhere in Acts when, when Paul has been given that message from God that there's still those that have been chosen of God that have not yet come to God. So he's going to be able to continue preaching in Corinth until that happens. Okay, so eternal life is those who have a relationship with God. And so when he talks about eternal life, there's several people have come and asked about how they know they have eternal life. And we go to 1 John chapter 5. In verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So the whole book of 1 John is written so that you may have the confidence and assurance that you have eternal life. Okay? So what did 1 John write? You start out in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 John. And he said, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have, beha- we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. So what was from the beginning? Who, what's he talking about here? The word. the word that became flesh, and we witnessed it. We saw him. We handled it. We touched him. And he says, And the life that was manifested in this word, the life... We have seen and we bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested. So Jesus Christ is eternal life. He's God. Life comes from God. And so eternal life is that eternal presence with God forever and ever that is only true about those who have been born again and have God's nature within them. And God's nature within them will exist forever and ever with God. It says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you all that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that word fellowship there means participation. If we have participation, if we have participated in the life of Christ through the saving work of the Holy Spirit, the born-again experience, then we have that nature of God, that life of God within us. And that life of God is eternal. And that's what 1 John says in chapter 2. He says in 1 John, he says... In verse 24, as for you, let that abide in you, which would, which you heard from the beginning. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the son and the father. And this is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life that is in the son. So go, you go back to chapter five of John before you get to that chapter 13 statement that we have to know. He says in verse uh In verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he who has borne witness concerning his son, the one who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this, 
that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. If you're born again, you manifest the nature of God within you, and you have that witness that you have the life because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is my provision of life that emanates from my nature, from my heart, then I know that I have eternal life because I am in the Son and the Son is in me. And so that's what he is talking about when he's talking about this fellowship with the Father and with his Son. And this is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The only way you can know him is to have the Spirit of God regenerate your heart and give you a nature that responds to the truth of God, to God himself, that you are known of God, and if you're known of God, that means you know God. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, when he is talking about the two ways, the broad road and the narrow road, and he gets to the end of that passage, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Satan can reproduce and produce things in your life that are religious leaning or religious looking. Doesn't mean that they're from God. Because he says in the next verse, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And what he means is, I, as God, never chose you from the beginning. I never set my affection on you. I never knew you before the beginning of the world. And you're not part of those who says in Romans 8, I foreknew you. Those whom I foreknew. Jesus says to those who claim to be religious, who claim that they shouldn't be at the great white throne judgment, who claim that they should not be going to eternal lake of fire. Jesus will open the book of life and says, you're not here. I never knew you. I never knew you. You're still in your sins. And all those who are still in the sins are separated from God. And because you're at this great right on judgment, now you are with a resurrected body. You are going to an eternal lake of fire that is reserved for the devil and his angels and all those who are like him in nature. And so when Jesus says that, um, that eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son, that means you have been born again and brought into life with him.